There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Seen, the podcast that's all about television and television programmes with me, Peter Fincham. And me, Mariella Frostrup. And we've got three more programmes to discuss today with our special guest who we'll introduce in a few minutes. Before we do that, Mariella, I want to talk to you about subtitles. I saw a an article in the Times, I think it was, at the weekend, which said it's completely normal for younger people, Gen Z people, whatever you want to call them, to watch the television, English language television, I'm not talking about, you know, Scandi dramas in Danish, with subtitles on. And my children, who are in their early 20s, do this all the time. Why? I don't understand. I don't have a clue, is the honest truth, but I've just suddenly had one theory flash across my mind, which is that they seem to be multi-occupied all the time. And if you're having a conversation, I mean, I've often walked into my daughter's bedroom when she's getting dressed to go out, she's got the computer on some series, some TV series, and she's on the phone to a friend, I don't know, comparing outfits or talking about whatever. And I wonder if they keep the subtitles on so they can just do all those things at once because they can't actually focus on doing one single thing. I see that. But you could turn that argument on its head and say, because, you know, my kids, they sit watching the television and they're also looking at their phones. Well, if they're looking at their phones, the subtitles are of no use to them whatsoever. I mean, ironically, this is a generational thing. The other end of the sort of generational scale, my parents-in-law watch the television with subtitles on because they can't hear the dialogue. And this is the thing that's most often complained about, that people, as they get older, struggle to hear dialogue. They hear the background noise and the music louder than they do the dialogue. When um, we all got acquired a taste for Scandi Noir and international drama, particularly from Scandinavia, like The Killing and The Bridge, I remember hearing the argument put forward that one reason it was very popular with older audiences is that it allowed them to watch television with subtitles so they absolutely knew what was being said without the embarrassment of thinking this reveals that I'm getting a little bit hard of hearing as I get older. And I thought that's a very interesting theory which made sense. So I understand that. I don't understand it about young people. I don't understand why you would want, when when you've got a line of dialogue that's been hopefully well-written and beautifully delivered by an actor, to see it reduced often to you know three or four words on the screen with none of the subtlety, none of the nuance, and yet they do it all the time. I don't get it. 
Well, I have no theory on the teenagers, but as always, you present a conundrum that indeed our listeners might want to respond to and let us know the answer to, because like I say, I've I've let you down enormously. I don't have a big theory. But this week, we have some big TV shows to discuss, and I think it's time probably to introduce them because we've also got an extra special guest joining us, a true TV expert. So the programmes we're going to be talking about are the Netflix adaptation of the Pulitzer award-winning novel All the Light We Cannot See, the return of Survivor to BBC One after two decades, I think, since the format last had an outing on British television. And given that we're recording this on Halloween, though you may not be listening to it on Halloween, of course, we thought we'd indulge ourselves with a quick look at Apple's new docudrama that tells the story of the Enfield poltergeist. Our guest this week is the hugely successful novelist, producer, screenwriter, the very brilliant Daisy Goodwin. Daisy created the award-winning ITV drama Victoria, starring Jenna Coleman, which has been picked up in over 140 countries in an earlier incarnation. She and I worked together at the production company Talkback, where she was behind shows like How Clean Is Your House, Property Ladder, many others. The Apprentice, the UK version of The Apprentice, came from that time. Daisy went on to form her own production company, and as if that wasn't enough, she's also written four novels, all of which have been New York Times bestsellers. A new book, Diva, about the famous opera singer Maria Callas is out next spring. Daisy, welcome. Hi, Peter. Was that enough credits to your name, or do you want to go, I go back further? <laughs> I, think, I think you messed up the Bradford and Bingley Prize for Best Personal Finance Programme which was a bit of a <laughs> No, highlight. I was going to mention that. That was my job. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got three programmes to talk about. And uh, Mariella, are you going to introduce the first? I love that little question mark at the end. That's so professional presenter, <laughs> Peter. First up, Netflix have given the big budget TV series treatment to all the light we cannot see. Anthony Doerr's 2014 Pulitzer winning novel. The series spans the course of a decade and tells the story of a blind French girl who begins to broadcast radio messages on behalf of the resistance during World War II and a brilliant German teenager with an expertise in radio repair who's forced to fight for the Nazis. There was this voice I listened to on the radio and I will never know who she is. Wherever in the world you are, I pray that the signal from this radio is reaching you. If you can hear me, remember. Darkness lasts lasts even for one second. When you turn on the light. It's got some real Hollywood star power behind the project. Mark Ruffalo and Hugh Laurie both have big roles. But the actress, who you hear delivering those lines so beautifully in the clip, is Marie-Laure Leblanc, and hers is a story. She was cast in the role after a global search for a blind or low-vision actor. A fan of the book, she auditioned after learning about the search from a teacher. And despite no acting training, she beat thousands of submissions to secure the role. It's her first ever acting job, and I don't want to preempt the discussion 
Uh, but I thought she was absolutely breathtaking. But why don't we hear from Daisy, seeing as she's our honoured and esteemed guest this week, and also a seasoned hand at a historical drama. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the most expensive TV programme I've ever seen about radio. The power of radio. So the character in it, in a sense, is a prototype podcaster. She's podcasting, you could say, to the people in the yes, French town. She certainly is. Um, I was. I mean, I've read the book. I enjoyed the book. I think it's a very hard book to adapt because it's got two timelines, and they are quite fractured. And it all depends on the two lead characters meeting at the end. And that's quite hard to convey, I think, in a, in a first episode. They've done their best. I would say that I was not utterly gripped for the first two thirds. And then I began to lean into it a bit more. I was very pleased to see the wonderful German actor called Lars Eidinger, I think, who plays the dying Nazi looking for the famous jewel, MacGuffin. Um, he's fantastic. He's literally the best thing in it for me. And, you know, he lifts it. I have to say, I thought the performance from the central character, well, I didn't know that she was blind. I think it's interesting. I think she, she wasn't bad, but she was clearly somebody who was acting for the first time. I thought the little girl who played the little law was amazing. The little girl who was also clearly blind. Didn't you think that the boy who plays the younger radio operator, the child radio operator, was also great? Yeah, I thought the child acting was okay. It wasn't brilliant, but it was okay. I felt that there was rather too much CGI for my taste. And unfortunately, I was watching on a laptop, not on a kind of great big screen where it might have looked better. But I felt curiously disengaged at the beginning. And I think that that's partly because the book builds up the atmosphere very slowly, very carefully. You really care about these characters by the end. And I'm not sure that I was sufficiently engaged from the beginning. Um, I agree with Daisy. I did also think too much CGI, but I feel that like I think that almost every day. And I don't know when we're going to sort of realise that actually the more human way of depicting things actually resonates much more with us. Last week we were talking about life on our planet and that was that was sort of completely destroyed in a way by endless CGI recreating, you know, now extinct creatures and things. Maybe the CGI would look better on a bigger screen, but I felt that it was unnecessary. It didn't really add to the drama or the emotional intensity of what we were watching. And I thought some of the some of the dialogue was almost laughably bad, actually, which again, very surprising because Stephen Knight's a brilliant writer. But I felt I felt the heavy hand of sort of too many producers on this show. Yes. We ought to explain to our listeners that the CGI, a lot of things happen in CGI. Uh, Aeroplanes attack this French town, Saint-Malo, and they really don't look like real aeroplanes at all. They look like something out of a video game. You don't need to see the planes. You could do it with sound. I mean, it's a show about humans connecting across the ether. It's not a show about aeroplanes. And I think they felt they had to give it majesty. They had to put in a lot of CGI. And I felt that was a mistake. It is quite stylized. It's not mm. a sort of gritty, real world. One of the things I found, I thought, who is this aimed at? With these children and this teenage character, in some ways it felt as if it was mm. in like a Hollywood movie aimed at families or kids. But then it's actually a very adult series. And I couldn't personally find the level to relate to it on. It's got lots of Nazis in it. There's actually... A famous sketch by Mel Smith and Griff Rhys-Jones, 
who Daisy and I have both worked with in the past, called Nazi Generals, a brilliant sketch where it mines all the cliches mm. of Nazi generals in all films ever written mm. and television series ever made. One of them is the Nazi general who can't be bothered to do the proper Nazi yeah. salute. Yeah. He does a sort of half-hearted Heil yeah, Hitler. That. that turns up in this. Mm. And the other one is the Nazi general who talks in a very, very controlled way and appears to be very much in control and then suddenly loses temper like that at the end of his sentence. That's another one of the cliches that is in this. And I I can only say I found by the... I, I was more gripped in the last 15 minutes, but I thought... I haven't read the book. I don't know what this is and I don't relate to it at all. What did we think about Mark Ruffalo? Because he's obviously, I I said Hollywood credibility and he's obviously the the Hollywood name. I mean, I know Hugh Laurie is too. He's in very odd casting. I don't know what he was bringing to the party, really. He's an example of what you might call overcast because... It's distracting to have Mark Ruffalo. It's also a bit distracting, but it's early days yet when Hugh Laurie walks in with an enormous beard and you think, gosh, well, what are you doing here? And what is it in this part that attracted you? Maybe the answer will become clear in subsequent episodes, but it feels to me like a lot of production value. So it's very expensive. It's very glossy. And yet, weirdly, it doesn't, to my eye, convince you of its reality. And therefore, I'm not invested in the characters and the stories yet i actually think this is a book that would have made a better movie than a tv series because i think a movie you would have been forced to kind of concentrate i think with the way that tv is now if you look away for about 10 seconds you've completely lost the plot on this one and i think that's that's a real disadvantage well i think that's pretty emphatic and i'm not going to persuade either of you we live in very polarized times i feel like <laughs> i'm being squashed into the defend all the light we cannot see corner and i'm not intent on doing that but i do think that it's interesting to look at i think there are some amazing performances there i think it's very clunkily written and strangely directed yeah All episodes of All the Light We Cannot See are available on Netflix now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Okay, well, look, we should move on. We've got two more shows to talk about. So our second show, Survivor. Survivor is back on BBC One. It's the, you could say it's the original reality show. Eight people are split into two tribes, as they call them, and they compete against each other for the title of sole survivor and a cash prize of £100,000. Now, Survivor's got a very strange history because it started... 20 more years ago, maybe 25 years ago in America. It's on its 44th series in America. It's wow. been one of those absolute bankers of long-running successes. But in Britain, it ran for two series on ITV, and then it disappeared. And why was that? And the, I think the answer is Big Brother that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Survivor came along, and it seemed rather kind of it wasn't live. It didn't have that connection with the audience that Big Brother did. So for the last 20 years, Survivor's been the show that isn't on British television. And now it's been brought back by the BBC. The host is Joel Domit. And as you can hear from the clip, he absolutely gets into the spirit of things. This is the most physically demanding and emotionally draining game on television. God knows what's ahead. Welcome. To Survivor! To get further into this game, we need a strong tribe. Do you think there is anyone I should be wary of? Survivor's ready! Go! Outwit, outplay, outlast. Who gets to stay and who gets to go? We'll find out. The tribe has spoken. This is Survivor. What do we think on the evidence of the first couple of episodes? Could this iteration run for 45 series on the BBC? Daisy, I'm going to come to you first here, as a, if you like, as a format queen. This is so much about formats and the sale of formats. Around the time when Survivor launched, 25 years ago, Daisy and I went to Channel 4 to pitch the idea for a formatted programme. And the commissioning editor said... I don't think there's much of a format here. I don't like the title and I don't think the presenter is right for Channel 4. Grand designs. Yeah, but that's because it's a natural format. That's the difference. You know, the reason people watch it is because in every single episode you see a hole in the ground and at the end you see a house. Or if you don't see a house, you see a divorce. So it has a beginning, middle and an end. The reason I tell that story is that formats are slippery things and the person whose judgment matters when something is commissioned. The guy we were pitching it to was a really nice guy and a really intelligent guy called Steve Hewlett, sadly no longer with us. But he couldn't see the point of it at all, although he did commission it and it still runs 25 years later. And Survivor, by contrast, when it came to the UK, was a copper-bottomed hit from America, and yet it didn't survive excuse the pun, in the UK for more than a couple of series. And therefore, it's been languishing from a British point of view for over 20 years. And now the BBC have brought it back. Why? Why have they brought it back? Presumably because they think it'll be a hit. Does it matter that it had a previous life 20 years ago and that it's been a, on American television all this time? And in lots of other countries, by the way. But it's just, it's a very odd decision, I think. I mean, why, of all the things you were going to put on BBC One, why would you put this show on? I mean, you know, you buy in a format that didn't work before and now you think 25 years later it's going to because all the people who watched it originally um, don't watch TV anymore and there's a whole new generation who are going to watch this 
really very old-fashioned program. I mean, talk about cultural appropriation. I was cringing when they brought out that kind of, oh, you the know, trophy the, thing, the, the, the icon the thing. Pearl. Yeah. Oh, oh my, my goodness. God. I mean, <laughs> Did no one at the BBC think, oh, this is a bit dodgy. You know, we're talking about tribes and we've got bandanas and torches. I was really sort of surprised by that because I'm not particularly sensitive to these things, but I was sitting there feeling very embarrassed for the whole, for everybody involved in this production. The thing that struck me, because you two have talked about formats and things, and normally I'm the person going, oh, I can't bear formats, I can't bear formatted things, so predictable. You know, we were talking about Mamma Mia, that new TV show the other day, and for me it was like death by format because I felt like I knew every single thing that was going to happen because I've seen it happen in every other reality show. But with this, ironically, I felt like it was in desperate need of a format. You know, I didn't want to watch the first 20 minutes of the show not knowing who any of these people were and they were all just shrieking Mm. and jumping into the water. And I felt like I actually needed to engage in some way and I needed a route into engaging that wasn't being given to me. And then once we got to the island and the whole tribal thing started, I was like, this is insane. I, I hate to tell you both this. I quite enjoyed it. I thought this is quite a smart idea to bring back Survivor because it hasn't run for 44 series in America for no reason. I did think that the use of the word tribe was a bit embarrassing. But fundamentally, we've talked about a couple of reality shows on this show. We've talked about Race Across the World. We've talked about Big Brother. We've talked about Mamma Mia, none of which you like, Mariella. I totally get that. I thought... I I could get into this. I kind of like it. But it's not a patch on The Apprentice, Peter. I mean, The Apprentice had real challenges in the real world. And I felt the whole ludicrous island thing and the fact that you know perfectly well there's a whole production team at their back the whole time, you know, and they're not really starving. Actually, they do get rice and peas. I mean, I just felt all of that was just so old-fashioned and I wanted something that felt more real than that. I mean, it was very well made and very well cast. I will give it that. And it was well, it was well done. It wasn't boring, but I do think that it felt old-fashioned and sort of designed in a way that I was surprised that the BBC thought they were going to put their might behind it now. How do you think it compares with things like, you know, Bear Grylls and stuff? Because I quite like the ones that feel really authentic, where it feels like people really are battling against the odds. I mean, you know, they're not going to die a gruesome death, but at least, you know, that they actually are having to tackle some of the... And I thought some of the challenges, like, (laughs) sorry, the holding the bucket up in the air. I mean, why would you pick something that was an hour-long challenge when you're making a TV show that's... I I can't remember the length of it, but, um, you know, it, it just felt really weird to just keep going back to these people people hanging on to the handles of those buckets and keeping them up in the air. Well, it kept my attention. I did think, you know, why would you have a thing where it's so obviously better for men than women all the way through? I mean, strength seemed to be the sort of key indicator of success. And that was quite surprising, although it was the bloke in the end who dropped the things. I mean, it's not a bad format, and I think they've done it well. It just seems oddly old-fashioned, Um And it's not breaking new ground, but maybe that's okay. Can I pick up the point you were making about The Apprentice, Daisy? Because I think The Apprentice is one of the best formats ever created. And by the way, 
these all date to the turn of the century. They all date to 2000, 2001, around then. And uh, go back again to our conversation about Grand Designs. If Grand Designs is a sort of non-format, an anti-format, it is a format, but it wears it so lightly. There are no twists. The reason the guy from Channel 4 said he didn't think much of it as a format is it didn't have any clever twists in it. You just yeah. see the house being built. So The Apprentice is all format. But... Yeah. I don't watch The Apprentice anymore because it has run for the last 25 years and it's got a little bit tired. Yes, it has. My point about Survivor is that if you don't remember it from 25 years ago, most people don't, and you haven't seen it before, you might think this isn't a bad format. And I'm guessing that there's an audience out there who will enjoy it and have no interest in the history of the format and American television and so on. But they've seen Celebrity SAS, they've seen He Dares Wins, they've seen all those other shows. I'm not sure it'll feel as new to them as it might do. And also, it's so obviously cast. You know that they've got the annoying person, you know they've got the really fit boxer. I mean, it's just... I don't know. Yeah, anyway, but they all, do, mean, they all do that. They, they all have to cast I'm not, them, I mean, I wasn't actually bored, so I, I give it that. I got bored during the challenge, which is surely the antithesis of what's supposed to happen during a challenge. And I feel like a younger audience, which I think those sorts of shows depend on quite strongly, I didn't feel there was that much in there for a younger audience. And I think that they're probably the ones most likely to find the whole tribal thing really, really uncomfortable. And that, as you said, Daisy, I'm not a person who's normally particularly sensitive to such things but I just felt I felt it was completely incongruous even using the word tribes I mean they're not tribes they're a bunch of contestants you know it, it was naff and, and ill thought out I think I thought it was well cast there were sort of interesting characters but I didn't really think I got to know them particularly well either and I and they did keep zooming in on on that guy's muscles that may be the thing that you know keeps people watching but it's not love <laughs> island is it let's face it <laughs> I wonder how much freedom the people who made it here in the UK had to fiddle with the format. It's one of those things where if you want to buy the rights to produce Survivor in the UK or any other country, you have to stick to quite a rigid kind of format that you know has been developed over many years. Maybe they weren't allowed to change the word tribe. <laughs> But ultimately, Peter, viewers don't really care about that, do they? They don't care. They care no, that they the, switch it on the lawyers, and they're engaged But by the it. lawyers do. And, I mean, they, they might have wanted to get rid of the tribe and they can't because the lawyers from Mark Burnett said, no, you can't do that. You can't mess but with But I'm it. surprised that that's okay in America. Well, me too. Me too. But I think it's a show that people don't notice anymore. But I think if you're seeing it for the first time, you go, hang on a minute. Yeah. This is a bit sort of yeah, that's fair. You know, it's weird. But I also think there's a whole issue here, which always interests me, which is in the lifespan of programmes and how what's fresh now feels tired in 10 years' time. Then you rest it for a bit, then you bring it back, hope it's fresh again. That's what Big Brother has done. And, you know, a format can be dusted off and given a completely new lease of life, a sort of new lick of paint, if you're free to do new things with it. Now, but this isn't it. I think it's better than both of you think it is. But time will tell whether it's going to find a new audience. I think it's been executed really well. I have no fault with the production. I was just surprised at how old-fashioned it felt in a way and how I didn't learn anything. Because when you watch The Apprentice, no matter how ludicrous it is, you do pick up something. And I felt that for the BBC, it felt like a format without much 
without much going for it in terms of educational value. So to your point about The Apprentice, Daisy, I've always thought the least interesting thing in The Apprentice is the task in the middle of it, because often you, you're kind of tempted to fast forward through that to get to the eviction scene, the boardroom scene where Alan Sugar goes, you're fired. Oh, I love the tasks. I love the tasks. I think if you don't like the tasks in a reality show that's got tasks in it, then you don't like the show itself, because the tasks are the essential part of the artifice, aren't they? Which is why I was worried that I got bored during that one and when they said it was already 40 minutes in I thought and it feels like it you know even though I've only seen a very highly edited version. Well they chose a task for the first episode which consisted of people standing still and not letting go of you know which was as you were saying earlier was a pure test of strength which favours men but it was a bit static. Yeah it was just testosterone there was no skill. Yeah no and it was very static quite literally. Yeah, and there was no skill involved, which I found a bit sort of dull. All right, well, look, Survivor is airing on Saturdays and Sundays on BBC One. They're all in on it, BBC One. You can catch up on the first episode now, I think, and the second episode on the iPlayer. And we will see over the next uh, few weeks whether it finds a whole new audience and becomes a hit in the UK to match its enormous success in America. We will indeed, and we're very happy to be proved wrong. We often are proved wrong. (laughs) You you listeners out there can smirk uh, when it soars to the top of the ratings. We have got just one more programme that we've got time to have a quick chat about, which is the Enfield Poltergeist, Apple's new docudrama about the famous haunting, and I use that tone of voice advisedly, of an otherwise ordinary family in suburban London in 1977. What you're seeing is a reimagining of those events. But what you're about to hear is real. What do you want? Tell us what you want. I can't comment you. That's an 11-year-old girl. Experience the original recordings. It was like someone's knocking to come in. In the chilling new docu-series. People witnessed Janet levitating. I know what I experienced and I know that it was real. As you can hear from that clip there, the real-life recordings are quite chilling. But what do we really think this documentary adds to the proceedings? It must be said there's already a fairly hefty canon of stuff that's been made about the Enfield hauntings and, of course, reams and reams of articles and so on. Um, Oh, I don't want to to give away my thoughts, but I found this absolutely turgid. And I'm going to turn to you, Daisy, because you are our top star guest expert well i watched it i wasn't quite sure what to expect it took me a little while to kind of figure out what was actually happening i thought the recreation of a 70s living room was completely brilliant although i don't remember the 70s being quite so brown and orange but i kept waiting for somebody to go okay here's the other point of view that actually maybe there are no such thing as poltergeist and you know maybe these two teenage girls are having a lot of fun terrifying all these old blokes that never came and i have to say what is the point because i mean i watched the first episode with three 
sort of Gen Zers, and they're all very into spiritual stuff, and I thought they'd be all riveted. And I watched them as one by one, they fell asleep. So I think maybe it's the, maybe it's the same, just, I don't know what it was, but they just, all of them fell asleep. And I was the only one who was awake at the end because I was... They didn't artist. go into some sort of poltergeist-influenced trance. No, 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 they didn't. Although, like, let's put it this way, they weren't so scared that they couldn't go to sleep. And the other thing I noticed from the credits is that Lorene Jobs, who's Steve Jobs' widow, is one of the executive producers. And you think, well, why? Why would you spend money on, <laughs> on this sort of credit sort of thing? And why are people so interested in it? I mean, there's a new play coming out about the Enfield poltergeist. There's been endless TV programmes and dramas and whatever. And I didn't think it was nearly as good as the show that's on BBC Two at the moment, the Danny Robbins thing, where at least they have a bit of one person going, oh, it's really scary, and somebody else going, yeah, you, re- you do realise this is all nonsense. Because you do need that, because otherwise it's just a not very interesting docudrama where you've got some really quite peculiar people talking to lip-syncing this not very interesting dialogue. Sky did it only two or three yeah. years ago as a drama with Timothy yeah. Spall, very well-regarded drama. Um, now, I've, I need to reveal, I have jumped ahead and I've watched the last episode. And in the last episode, the teenage girls who are at the heart of this mystery, and there's some very weird things there. They're lying in bed and then this man with his tape recorder comes running into their bedrooms, inappropriate. Uh, he's, he looks a bit like John yes, McCreary, the, the Channel 4 rating bloke from years ago. There's also this very <laughs> peculiar technique, which actually, to be fair, they nearly pull off. They use the original recordings and get modern day actors to lip sync to the original recordings and kind of hats off to them for doing that as well as they do. But in the last episode, the the women arrive. The teenage girls who are now obviously, as you'd expect, middle-aged, women are middle-aged, they turn up. And within seconds, I think, the whole thing was a big lark. I don't think they believed it. I don't think they believe it now. But it's been an extraordinary sort of ride that they've gone on where if you're into poltergeist, the Enfield poltergeist is the gold standard of poltergeist. It's like people are into UFOs. and But why couldn't this programme, in a sense, develop an attitude to it rather than go to enormous lengths to painstakingly tell us the story? Because they think what people want to do is to believe in poltergeist. They think that everybody believes it. And actually, I think... People are brighter than that, you know. But I tell you what, I once had a poltergeist in my house. You've had a poltergeist. I'm not a a ghost believer or anything like that. But when I was little and we were going through a particularly turbulent time at home and my mother was on the verge of, you know, probably a nervous breakdown, she just had a baby and that was my half-brother and he was in a bedroom in this house in Dublin that we were living in that she'd painted this extraordinary and terrifying kind of canary yellow gloss paint, which was partly how we knew that she was going around the bend. (laughs) And it started to happen that we would hear the baby in the bedroom laughing and gurgling and then we wouldn't be able to get in the door, like something was blocking it. And then eventually... And this went on, I don't really know how long it went on for, for about two weeks at least. Eventually, the chest of drawers in this baby's bedroom was pushed up against the inside of the door of the bedroom with no adult in there and no... And 
and and all. How old were you? I think I must have been about ten or eleven maybe. And I just remember it as being the weirdest passage. I mean, obviously, as a kid, I was more fascinated than I was terrified. But my mother was driven, as you can imagine, uh, completely around the wow. bend by this. And I still have no rational explanation for it. And, in, and eventually, I think it just sort of stopped. But I mean, it was really, really uh, bizarre. So did a man who looked a bit like Channel 4 racing commentator John McCurick <laughs> turn up with a tape recorder and come rushing into your bedroom at all times of night? <laughs> No, we had no such investigator available to us in Dublin at the time. I think I was more worried about, actually, because that was a lot of prosthetics going on with that guy, wasn't there? Um, What was his name, the actor? (laughs) Morris Gross was the character. He looked extraordinary. He he looked like someone had stuck a caterpillar to his top lip. (laughs) Well, at that point, I think we should say thank you to our guest, Daisy Goodwin. Oh, thank you. I feel slightly guilty, guys, because we've had three programmes here and we haven't wholeheartedly liked any of them, have we? That's the honest truth. So next week, we better find some programmes we'd really like. But they're they're a really interesting mix of programmes. It's been great discussing. And Daisy, thank you very much for making time to come on Have You Seen? Thank you so much for having me. We're particularly keen to hear from you, our listeners, about what you've been watching, what you've hated, what you've loved, what are we missing or getting wrong. So you can send us an email, you can get in touch via our socials, you can WhatsApp us. All the info is in the description. And do join us next week. We're going to be chatting about the new Netflix Robbie Williams series. Have we reached peak access, Doc? Uh, Come back next week to hear the verdict. Thank you for listening. See you next Thursday. See you next week. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.